Hey there, everybody. This is James Lindsay. Welcome back to the New Discourses podcast, where we're going through a uh, long-running series on the critical education theory, the so-called critical pedagogy. We are in a mini-series within that. There's a kind of nested series within series within series, where we're reading through um, the Brazilian Marxist educator's works. Um, Paulo Freire is his name, or Freire, um, to get it pronounced, I think, closer to correct. We're going through his book right now, The Politics of Education, and just to kind of recontextualize this, this is a kind of, depending on how you want to count them, second or fourth episode of the podcast specifically about the politics of education. I did two podcasts where I read through the introduction, which was written by Henry Giroux, and I now would say that if you take Paulo Freire as being a significant prophet of the Marxist religion, that Freire uh, represents something you know, like somebody who's coming and proclaiming the faith, that uh, Henry Giroux, who wrote the foreword to this book or introduction to this book, is like his evangelist who brought him mostly in particular to the North American education context, though that's a slightly more complicated story that you can hear in the previous episode where I went through in tremendous detail what's going on with Freire's approach to education in uh, chapters one and two of this book. So in this episode, I am going to endeavor to summarize chapters three and four, and we'll probably just read most or all of chapter five. Um, I think this is a good way to break up the book. I really need people, I'm putting this much attention and this much detail on going through Freire's work. This is the politics of education from 1985. This is the seminal work that brought critical education and particularly Paulo Freire's uh, educational uh, pedagogy to North America. I'm going through this in so much detail because it's so absolutely important to understand uh, that Freire is really the cornerstone, the foundation upon which all of this Marxist education that we're dealing with today is based. And so if you listen to the previous episode, if you're new here, then go back and listen to the previous uh, discussion of this book, chapters one and two, and you'll hear, for example, I'm very explicit that culturally responsive education, culturally relevant education, culturally sustaining education, cultural competency, all have their roots directly in Paulo Freire's approach to education, particularly as laid out in this book. And I kind of summarize there how blatantly religious this is. It's very clear that Freire, um, like all Marxists, kind of have this messianic view of the world and of the role of education within that to create a Marxist utopia, and that for him, education is the way to get there. And so, you know, that's a very important way to, to understand that's not what education is supposed to be about. Um, but the fundamental dichotomy that that Freire is laying out is that education can either be used to work toward the utopia and thus save man from himself, or education can be used to reproduce the existing society and condemn man to a continued uh, exclusion from that utopia uh, that's actually self-imposed by his own unwillingness to be conscious of the need and the ability to get there. And so... When we remember from the introduction where Henry Giroux characterizes, and we will hear this very explicitly when we get to a little further into this book from Freire directly, he characterizes, quoting Paulo Freire, that his 
approach contains, he says, a permanent prophetic vision for not just education, but society, which will follow from the education. And when you hear that, and then you realize that this Marxist view that he's pushing forth and remodeling education around is how that's supposed to come into being. And that prophetic vision in Freire's own words is permanent revolution. Uh, because he says, as we'll hear later, this is the, the book where maybe one of Paulo Freire's most famous utterances comes from, which is that for the, I'll paraphrase it because I can't quote it exactly, but for a revolution to be authentic, it must be perpetual for the moment it stops being revolutionary, it becomes a status quo. Um, when you start to realize that this is the kind of vision that they have for the world and that they've remade education around this, it starts getting really uncomfortable. The religious overtones, the Marxist religion, Marxist theology is being spoken very clearly by Freire. I actually think he speaks it more clearly than maybe anybody since George Lukács. Um, I don't feel like, for example, the critical Marxists, Horkheimer, Marcuse, etc., are particularly clear on the theological aspects. And maybe this is why Freire represents such a renewer um, and I get that sense reading this book, and I also kind of get it looking back now at Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So the kind of big context, what we big takeaway that we have to pull up from the previous episode to understand what's going on in chapters three and particularly chapter three, but also chapter four and going in chapter five of this book, what we have to understand is um, that Freire is approaching from the context of peasant illiteracy, adult literacy education in Brazil. He's taking the peasants and he's trying to talk about how they're educated in learning how to read. And he compares skills-based education with um, Marxist education. And essentially what's going on is he says that skills-based education is bad and Marxist education is good, uh, as one would expect. And he explains the two problems with skills-based education in particular are that they don't raise a political consciousness on the one hand. And secondly, they either reproduce or serve as a vehicle for reproducing the existing society by depositing the ideas of the existing society uncritically into learners, whereas Marxist education would do the opposite. And so in practice, what this means is, you know, focusing on phonics, learning to read, you know, and write actually as a skill that then can transform, that would create basic literacy, that would transform as understanding of the written word and of ideas matures into functional literacy where you can extract meaning, the, in fact, the author's intent from the book. That's to be replaced with a new kind of literacy, which is political literacy. And it becomes very clear that Freire is slowly blurring the lines between the notion of being able to read or not and being able to read society as a Marxist or not as what literacy really means. And he's kind of replacing either basic or uh, functional literacy, which is, again, the ability to extract meaning from what you read, and replacing that with what he calls transformative literacy, which is the um, ability to read politics and society in order to transform it. And in fact, he gets very religious in the second chapter near the end, discussing about how it is the important, like the point of education is actually for the learner to come to see himself as a conscious subject that's making history or contributing to the process of making history. And thus, um, that 
he is a creator in the sense of the Marxist philosophy, the Marxist theology. And I think that was really explicit. And if you listen to the last podcast, I think it's very clear that that's what his objective is. So skills-based education, this basically is what that's out. That's why your kids can't read because the point of education is not to induce skills-based mastery, which at best don't induce critical consciousness and at worst reproduce the existing society that they're trying to overthrow and it's to be replaced by this transformative literacy where the lesson should, in fact, be about the cultural context. He calls it generative words are the, the words that should be taught and that we shouldn't be teaching, you know, kind of silly, abstract, phonetic sentences. And we shouldn't choose our literacy or our reading lessons based on phonetics. We should be basing them on relevant politics because otherwise everybody will be bored and they won't learn how to change the world. Um so that's kind of the context of the first couple of chapters. You can go listen to the previous podcast where I read several passages from those chapters. And now we're going to continue in chapter three, which I had intended originally to stick in the previous podcast, but we hit two hours and I was like, eh, let's break it up. So chapter three is titled Peasants and Their Reading Texts, and we're going to see the continuation of these exact themes. Um, so I, I would tell you that, you know, in this chapter already, you know, right from the very beginning, uh, Freire's take on Marxian theology is becoming increasingly apparent. I think it was extremely apparent by the end of the second chapter, but the idea is simple. What he's arguing here when we're talking about peasants and their reading texts uh, is that, that to change the world comes from doing the work, thus proclaiming the world. And so that was a major theme, and that's rooted deeply in Marxian theology in the previous chapter that I really think I drew out successfully in the last podcast. Um, he says that it's not the same. To speak is not merely to utter the word, he says, or to speak is not to say. It is, in fact, to proclaim the world, which is a profoundly theological concept. And I even draw, again, the listener's uh, mind to the Gospel of John chapter 1. And the idea, or even the book of Genesis, where, you know, God spoke the world into existence. And so what we have in Marxism is an inversion. The Marxian theology is an inversion of the uh, Judeo-Christian theology. And so what you have now is not God, but man speaking the world into existence. And he speaks the world into existence by becoming conscious and becomes conscious by becoming a Marxist. And a Marxist is a person who understands that man creates man through creating society, which in turn creates man. So man becomes man's own object. Man becomes, or society becomes man's own object, and society and man shape man as they go forward. And that is a result of man being differentiated from the animals. This is a fundamental answer to the meaning of life type questions that religions exist to answer, theologies exist to address. And his argument is that what differentiates man from the animals is the animals are not conscious subjects. Men are conscious subjects. And what he says that means is that men are able to envision what they want to bring into the world, and then they're able to do work, which is differentiated from mere animal activity, to produce that thing that they have subjectively created in, in, as a thing they've envisioned in their mind. And then by seeing their creation come into the objective world by being made objective out of their subjective imagination or out of their subjective uh, perspective, they are able to enter into a dialectical relationship between themselves as subject and the 
object they created. The two things are in some sense continuous. They're bound together. And what man can see in the object that he creates is in fact that he is a creator. He is in fact not mere animal. He is in fact something higher than mere animal because he is something that can envision and thus create. And so this is central to the idea of the Marxian theology. And so what happens is what the range of your subjective understanding of the world delimits what you can imagine, thus what you can create, thus what you can see yourself as creator, thus what possible states of the world can be in, including whether or not they can be in a communist utopia. So the reason we don't have a communist utopia is because the social relations that are created by people who have a vested interest in maintaining them exist in a way such that everybody's vision for what the world could possibly be, their range of subjective experience, is limited by those social relations to maintain the existing order and not to be opened up to where something bigger, better, and utopian can be imagined. And if something can be imagined or reimagined, then it could be created if we just freed up the subjective understanding so that that which is subject could be made object. Marx is very clear if you read the 1844 manuscripts, the economic and philosophic manuscripts from 1844, he's very clear in those that... Um, Man creates man as his own object. So man creates society and man as his object. So the thing, one of the things that man envisions within his subjective range is the range of possibility for what man can be or become. And how that would happen is by making society become that. And how that would happen is by inducing a consciousness of a class that has the power to move history, whereas very few people have that power. But a class unified can create that power. And so when Freire is talking about learning to read literacy, meaning not just to be able to interpret a written word and then to say a word or create sounds, and he says it's a magical process that we we engage in literacy education. We teach people to associate symbols on paper with sounds and then words, and thus all of a sudden they are magically competent and fit for advanced society. He says that's not what the real point is. The point is to when to, to teach people their political context and the way that words can be spoken such that they start to transform the world by building class consciousness, etc., and thus we can proclaim the world. And like I said, later in the book, he spends a great deal of time talking about this idea. This is really central to the way he thinks. And what he actually talks about is that the role of the literate person is to constantly denounce the existing world, in other words, do critical theory, while announcing the arrival of a new one. Now, that's a slight difference from what we see in the critical philosophy, where the Horkheimer for example, was very pessimistic and said, well, we can't describe what a good world or the ideal world would look like from within the boundaries of the existing society. And Herbert Marcuse says the same kind of stuff. He says it's not possible to give a positive vision here. Negative thinking is what we need. We criticize the aspects of the society that we don't like and the positive that's contained within it will emerge. And Adorno says we can't cast an image of the utopia in the positive. We can only criticize and give a negative image of the society for failing to live up to that. And that's the point of a critical theory. But that's not what Freire is saying. And we'll come back to this when we get to the relevant chapter. Freire is saying that you can constantly denounce the world as it is and announce the arrival of the new world to proclaim the world by proclaiming the word or speaking the word where the word is the critically conscious politically awakened literacy that he's now replaced regular literacy with so thus the human subject or human being as subject can create the world and see himself as creator of it 
as it could be from whatever the range of his imagination is, like a communist utopia. And thus, he makes himself into both a man who recognizes himself as that, but also as a humanized man that realizes the only human condition is one of communist sharing. So the range of the illiterate's capacity to know himself as a subject for Freire is limited by his condition. So he's not illiterate because he can't read. He can't read because of his conditions, and he can't understand his conditions because of his conditions, including that he can't read. And all of this is just socially structured and constructed barriers to his comprehension, thus his ability to speak the word and proclaim the world, and thus achieve his emancipation, which can only happen as a class. This is what's really going on in Freirean education. All of this, this is what cultural competency, cultural relevant education, or culturally relevant, or whatever, responsive education is all about. It's just a repackaging of this into mostly racial identity politics. Uh, Freire contrasts that with the banking model of education, and yet another of these absolutely stupid false dichotomies where they caricature the thing that exists, completely misunderstand it, turn it into a joke of itself, like capitalism does out of a market economy, as Marx described capital. Uh, They make it into a a preposterous joke of itself and denounce it to try to throw it down. Um, And so for Freire, you're either doing a critical education or you're you're working with what he called the banking model of education, which is a absolute caricature of legitimate pedagogy, especially when it's skills-based. And he says that the banking model cannot achieve critical consciousness and just reproduces the dominant mode and the conditions because the way the banking model works and why it's called the banking model is that the representatives of the existing society in the form of teacher deposit knowledge into the so-called learner and thus like a bank account, like the learner is an empty vessel that's being filled up with the uh, ideas, thoughts, educated material or educational material, but also ideology, cultural norms, expectations, socialization of the teacher who is a product of his existing society. So the first chapter of this book was about learning to study. The second chapter goes into how do you engage with this? And the idea is supposed to be that the correct way to learn to read is to learn to read the social context in which the teacher or textbook writer or text itself exists and was created so that you can critique it constantly rather than just, say, learning the material within it, which might be learning to read or mathematics or whatever. So again, this is absolutely why your kids can't read, but why they can complain about every sociocultural culture war issue that you could possibly imagine. When we adopted Freirean education, we shifted out of the idea that we would actually learn how to do things that are functional in the existing society because that would continue reproducing the existing society and creating winners and thus also losers in the existing society, which is bad and oppression. And therefore, we have to get away from the idea of creating competence in the existing society and instead teach people to understand that the existing society apparently sucks and has to be thrown down. And that's the shift. That's what this is all about, and that's why your kids can't read and can't do math, but they can complain about everything, and they know everything you could possibly imagine about identity, neo-Marxist identity politics, or why they're trying to be groomed into that anyway. So what you have to understand is, in terms of its significance, the answer to the question that I framed at the last podcast in, how did this get picked up? Well, Marxists must have really liked it, but why was Freire so influential in the first place? Why did... 
instead of Giroux or Michael Apple or any of these other critical pedagogy people, why did Paulo Freire, this kind of weird Brazilian guy, end up becoming the cornerstone for critical pedagogy? And the reason is because he is a particularly articulate prophet of the Marxist religion, which a lot of people can't see because they have no idea that this thing is this kind of totalizing worldview that only a few of its authors have been able to really articulate in a way that's sweeping and moving. And like I said, he introduced, I said this in a previous episode, he introduced this concept of hope back into the picture, the critical hope mindset, that critical theory can actually work this time. And the reason that he did so is because of his shift away from let's constantly complain and whine and use negative thinking only and denounce the existing society to a new model of denunciation and enunciation, a new model of critical literacy where you are literate about the political so-called realities, according to Marxism, of your society so that you can constantly denounce the old world and announce the new world. And that's going to be his main thing. So he's almost like the chief prophet of the newest testament of the Marxist uh, scriptures. Um, that's key to understanding his fame and influence. Like I said, this makes Henry Giroux not so much into a brilliant thinker in his own right, but more of his evangelist. Uh, he's kind of a Pauline figure in this regard. Um, my guess is that actually Paulo Freire understood Marxist theology better than maybe anybody since Lukács. Like I said, George Lukács exp explains it in History and Class Consciousness, which, by the way, he said was written from a perspective of uh, what did he call it? Uh, uh, messianic. That's key. Messiah. Messianic um, utopian aspirations or, and also messianic revolutionary aspirations. Um, and so I think he actually understood it better. I think the critical Marxists went a different direction with it. And maybe we could there, if we're going to really stretch this analogy to like New Testament stuff, we could say that Herbert Marcuse kind of fills in a role like John the Baptist. Then we have almost in a Jesus-like role, Paulo Freire. And then you have Henry Drew as the evangelist explaining everything. And I think this is how Freire's influence became so significant. In other words, what I'm trying to say is you cannot understand why on earth did Paulo Freire become the guy without understanding that he's actually a very effective prophet of a religion. And the name of that religion is communism. And the name of the theology is Marxism. So he is really a revivalist or a renewer of the Marxist faith in the West, sweeping in in the mid-1980s after this kind of lull. 1972, we have Herbert Marcuse writing Counter-Revolution and Revolt. Marxism is kind of on the outs. It's crept into an academic left. That's what Isaac Gotsman tells us in the beginning of Critical Turn of Education. In education, sorry. And Freire is sort of picked up as the renewer, the renewer or the revivalist of the faith. And I think the reason is because he's got this idea where the faith is being renewed in the denunciation, annunciation, or proclaiming the world through critical literacy, which means political Marxist political literacy of one's conditions and context. And the point of education being to awaken that critical literacy as opposed to regular functional and basic literacy. And so if you want to know why I think Paulo Freire is so significant to this and why he's been so why he's been made the cornerstone of Marxian-style education, and thus Western education since the mid-1980s, I think it's because he plays that role. 
and this proclaiming of the world through learning to speak the word, which is to speak the Marxist consciousness of the word by learning to be literate of the society in those terms is the reason why he fulfills that role for people, for Marxist educators, Marxists in general. So to say that Marcuse has a gigantic influence and that we live in Herbert Marcuse's world is correct. But the way we get to living in Marcuse's world is by having a pivotal figure like Paulo Freire adjusting education so that Marcuse's vision of a great refusal and an attempt to build an entirely new society, the denunciation and, and annunciation of the new world is possible. So this is a very significant figure. We have to linger on his work. We're going to slog our way through all of this book or most of this book, and we're going to slog our way through Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And then we'll see what I do with the rest of the critical education <laughs> series because it's really, this is, the, this is it. This is really what's happening. Everything else is window dressing. Like I said, culturally responsive teaching, which is a huge deal, is literally just a repackaging of this. Just a repackaging of exactly this. Okay, so let's read a little bit from chapter three. He gets very explicit about what I just said. He says, and this is Freire, to change the world through work, to proclaim the world, to express it, and to express oneself are the unique qualities of human beings. That's the Marxist theology. That's exactly what I was saying just a few minutes ago. I'm not exaggerating in the least. This is how Marxists think about the world. It is a religious view of the world, and this is what they think they're achieving. This is why they want to remake education to do that. Everything I just said is confirmed literally in that one sentence. So let me read it again. This is the Marxist view of the world, and we're going to see how Freire attaches it to education. To change the world through work, to proclaim the world, to express it and to express oneself are the unique qualities of human beings. So this is a theory of human ontology. This is a theological statement, really, of what it means to be human. Then he goes on and says, education at any level will be more rewarding if it stimulates the development of this radical human need for expression. This is exactly what banking education, as I sometimes call it, does not do. In banking education, an educator replaces self-expression with a deposit that the student is expected to capitalize. I would assume he means capitalize upon. So he's saying that the existing model of education is one where teachers deposit the existing knowledge and uh, the, the norms of the existing society into the students, and the student replicates that and is expected to capitalize upon that, and those who can succeed and those who don't, don't. And then they say, well, it's because I'm better educated, so they end up with a meritocracy-based ideological excuse for why some people succeeded and some people didn't. And so learning, knowledge, being educated becomes, for Freire, bourgeois property upon which some people are able to capitalize. In other words, it is, for Marx, capital is a special kind of property that can be used to produce more property. This is, the for him, the essential contradiction of capitalism because that can't go on forever. And so knowledge, learning, etc., become a form of bourgeois property. And he's framing out all existing education as a banking model where capitalist-type people, or actually the educated people, possessors of this bourgeois property, knowledge property, deposit that into 
vessels in the form of their students or learners. Some of them, everybody's expected then to do whatever they want with what they learn and to capitalize upon it. And some people will use that capital to generate more capital and then to give a ideological excuse. I worked hard for it. I went to school. I got good grades. I studied hard. I became successful to justify why they're a success and other people are not a success. This is a reproduction of the Marxist theory of capital with regard to knowledge. It's very important to understand, especially when we start linking in, as Giroux did, some of the postmodern theorists who believed, and certainly later as seriously happened, that knowledge itself is actually just politics by other means. Okay, so in banking education, he says, an educator replaces self-expression which would be the expression of his subjectivity, creating the world by proclaiming it through his expression, thus doing the work of making something in the objective world, entering into a dialectical relationship between subject and object, his imagination and that which was created to see himself as creator in that. So in banking education, an educator alienates the student or the learner from that by replacing self-expression with a deposit that the student is then expected to capitalize upon reproducing Marx's theory of capital in the educated knowledge-based sense. Okay. The more efficiently he does this, Freire says, the better educated he is considered. Not the better educated he is, is considered. In adult literacy, he says, as in post-literacy, mastering oral and written language constitutes one dimension of the process of being expressive. Learning to read and write, then, won't have any meaning if it's done through a purely mechanical repetition of syllables. The guy really, really hates phonics. This learning process is valid only when the learner begins simultaneously to perceive the deep structure of language, along with mastering the mechanics of vocabulary. When she see, sorry, when she or he begins to perceive the close relationship between language thought, that's hyphenated as one concept, and reality in his or sorry, in her or his own transformation, she or he will see the need for new forms of comprehension and also expression. So again, we're seeing this same thing. The existing modes limit the range of subjective. Uh, vision, your your range as a subject. Thus, they prevent you from being able to envision new forms of expression and comprehension that will al- allow us to have a transformative vision of reality. And this is said to happen now when the student is taught to be literate, not just of their political condition and their position within the uh, power dynamics of, of the situation they're in and of history, situation they're in and of history, But also when they start to realize that there is a relationship between language thought, the ability to think and then express or to speak those ideas, and reality. But for Marxists, reality is that which you're creating in the objective world through the application of your subjective experience. So nature is out there. You take nature and use your subjective uh, language thought, as it were, to come up with an idea to actualize that idea, to change the objective world, and to see yourself as the creator of that transformation. As the transformative agent of change, see how they call your students change agents? Uh, That's what they call your kid, change agents, as the agent who creates the change or the transformation so that the world can go from one state to another state. The difference is, is that they believe that 
The primordial state of the world is that human beings do this relatively unconsciously, and then after Marx, where the consciousness was discovered, or maybe after Hegel, or maybe even after Rousseau, where the consciousness was discovered, this the, the trajectory of history can be directed consciously by people who have the right consciousness, by people who have perceived that their ability to think and thus speak the word will proclaim the world and thus transform reality and themselves into entities that are transformative change agents and creators. This is Marxist religion. It's impossible to understand this without understanding that this is Marxist religion. So you have to really lock into these religious overtones. Language thought is the seat of subjectivity. It is the ability to proclaim and thus to make the world. So what we have, take a little diversion here. In Christianity, if you read John chapter 1, what we have there is we have that God as Logos speaks the world into existence, right? Now what you have in the Marxist theology is awakened or woke man is proclaiming the world and speaking it into existence consistent with Marxist theology. But Marx doesn't frame out a God of Logos, a God of logic and reason and order. God's is a, or Marx's is a God of pathos, lived experience rather than one of Logos. This is a complete derangement. We're dealing with a, a religion that, rather than holding up God as logic and order and reason that can be comprehended and that's spoken, and that this order, spoken order, becomes the Word, and the Word becomes flesh, and the flesh becomes the world, rather than that, we now have lived experience, sentiment, Rousseau's sentimentality and sincerity, emotion, feeling, pathos. God is pathos. Your experience of your oppression, that which you gain as a special set of insights and positional thinking or standpoint epistemology as the oppressed, the slave vision provided by the master-slave dialectic, which exists so that the slave will have the experience of oppression that the master is unaware of, so that the slave can teach the master that and thus dialectically transform the world. The God is the manifestation, the worldly manifestation of pathos, the emotional resonance with lived experience. So you have the deliberate transformation, very Rousseauian, out of a world of order and logic, reason and evidence that follows from the, whether you want Genesis or John, uh, first chapters of Genesis and John, on the Judeo-Christian and really kind of, what is it, Greco-Israeli maybe, um, view of the world, and now you're shifting into one that is rooted in the passions, that is rooted in exactly what the Greeks warned about. This is the Rousseauian, Hegelian, Marxian rejection of reason, rejection of order. It is the pathos made word made flesh. And so man replaces God, but man is an, an entity of pathos, not of logos. But it's because Marx believed this is the scientific, the only scientific study of history, which is the history of man's social relations. What we actually have is it's pathos pretending to be logos. Thus, we have iron law of woke projection 
constantly. But like I said, this is a complete derangement. And this is what Freire is actually speaking about. Education must be geared not to teach people to accord with logic, reason, evidence, so on, skills-based, practical, all of that, because what that does is reproduces the world based on that set of order. Instead, he's supposed to understand his context, the emotions that it, that it raises, and he doesn't need any of those skills that would reproduce the ordered world. He wants to. He needs to live in the disordered world where revolution is perpetual so that power never becomes entrenched and can never oppress. It's a big shift. It's not just crackpot education theory. It is a direct inversion of that which is and that which works. So in this short chapter, as we heard through all this proclaiming of the world, um, Freire really you know, makes clear that he what he's doing is articulating the Marxist theology. And if you don't understand that, which is why I had to take the diversion out of this book into that before I could come back to this to help you understand it, um, if you don't understand that, you can't understand what's happened here. You can't understand what's happened to education, and you cannot understand what's happening to our society and culture that is being groomed in this way of thinking through the transformation of education and uh, its application through other forms like media, mass media, um, entertainment, and social media, etc. Uh, he also, in this chapter, which is short and there's not anything else to read from it here, he reiterates his thesis that educational content must be anchored in the context of the learners because that's where the pathos is, meaning the conditions of the repression because that's how you experience pathos as a vehicle for introducing the critical Marxist analysis of those conditions, which is the theology of that pathological condition. The cultural competency push that we see today in education then is just a blatant repackaging. It's an identity Marxist repackaging of this bad idea, of this theology posing as education. Um, to give you a concept, I think I mentioned this in the previous podcast, but to give you a concept of what, what we're talking about when Mar or, sorry, Marx, <laughs> when Freire talks about using generative words in order to teach literacy rather than phonetic words to teach reading. He specifically gives the example of teaching students to use the word struggle. So rather than teaching them, you know, basic words, or they're trying to figure out how to connect syllables, simple syllables to sounds, in other words, to written, uh, you know, two or three letter, four letter syllables in the written form so that you can teach them language, or, or, or I should say reading, through phonics. Instead, he says you have to use words that are relevant to their context, so he brings up the word struggle and tries to get them to read the word struggle first. You'll notice this is exactly the opposite. Of, this is exactly what he was accusing. Iron Law of Work Projection never misses. Exactly what he was accusing the so-called banking or deposit model of education of doing. He's now depositing the word struggle which is probably a hard word to read. He's not connecting it whatsoever. He's like, here's this word struggle you need to recognize. And somebody told me that they're using this method a lot of times that comes out of dyslexic, uh, specialized dyslexic literacy in schools. So rather than teaching kids phonics and to identify syllables and to sound words out, etc., Apparently, dyslexic people use kind of sight recognition of words, and there's a lot more memorization involved. I'm not dyslexic, so I don't know exactly what the process is. But what I was, what I heard recently is that many schools have adopted the thing that dyslexic people use, and they're teaching it to everybody. Why the exact same idea? The privileged kids who can read normally are going to get it anyway. So you just 
cater to the lowest common, aka equitable denominator, and you teach the dyslexic kids the dyslexic way while teaching everybody the dyslexic way, and it doesn't matter if it screws over the other kids because they're privileged, so they're going to get it anyway, which is the core marketing assumption. You always, always, always cater to Marx who didn't want to take a bath or get a job, which is true about Marx on both cases. So you always care, you always cater to the person who can't get it and then base the entire program on somebody who might, in the case of a dyslexic, need something specialized that most people don't need. But then you apply that to everybody. And so now we're going to apply the word struggle. We're just going to deposit that word and stick it in and everybody's just going to have to deal with that. But do you, are you really trying to teach them how to read the word struggle? No, you're trying to teach them to recognize the word struggle. And why? Because for Freire, as he describes it, is is it actually becomes a vehicle. You are, you're not teaching the person how to read the word struggle. You're bringing up the word struggle so people will talk about struggle. In other words, the Marxist educator will then reframe whatever the discussion was supposed to be about, which remember, we're supposed to be trying to teach adult illiterate peasants how to read, which would be the same as teaching children how to read or do arithmetic. You've now taken the context of the reading lesson. You've used, we're going to learn the word struggle. Today, we're going to learn the word black kids, and we're going to learn the word cultural competency. We're going to learn the word demisexual. And all of a sudden, you're now going to be talking about sexuality, or in this case, struggle which is the condition of reality from the Marxist perspective. So the Marxist educator can hijack the entire lesson into a Marxism consciousness-raising lesson or a political literacy lesson, as Freire has it. Remember, the previous episode we covered this is very important. Literacy doesn't mean being able to read or even being able to connect meaning through what you can read or write. It means being conscious, critically conscious of the society that you're in. Literacy means something different. And so the entire reading lesson or math lesson or science lesson or history lesson or whatever, the honest history lesson, will be hijacked to raise a critical consciousness. And so the example he gives is teaching the word struggle, and then he talks about the whole point is that the whole class then talks about struggle as they experience struggle with the educator then helping them understand what the meaning of their struggle is through a Marxian lens. So this is, even though this is supposed to be how you should really, according to Freire, do adult literacy, or again, this could be childhood literacy or basic arithmetic or anything else, it's not at all about that. Just like he laid out in the previous chapters, being literate has nothing to do or very little to do with being able to read or write or knowing how to do those at all. It means being politically literate and using excuses that look like pretend to teach you to read so that you can talk about political crap, pretend to teach you to do mathematics so you can talk about political crap, like the example that's in the critical uh, what is it called? The Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education. The, I bring this example up all the time. There's a chapter by Daniel Solarsano, and he is giving this example of an email that he received from a, an apparently lunatic educator who says that in an algebra lesson, they're struggling to teach the XY coordinate axes and plotting of points. And they said, well, it was really resonant with the students, culturally resonant because it was in their context as Freire's education model would have it. When they stopped trying to talk about it in the abstract, the dependent variable and the independent variable, and which would be, I guess, y and x in that order. Um, the horizontal axis and the vertical axis labeled this way, and they reframed it and said, well, what if the axes were racial consciousness and commitment to social justice? And then they had the students come up and plot their positions on this graph of how racially conscious do you believe you are? How 
committed to social justice are you? And then the whole class is about, well, what is social justice? What is your commitment to social justice look like? What is racial consciousness? Well, how do you know how racially conscious you are? And then where are you on this, this graph? Where, where are the better places to be on this graph? Why are you not in those places? What do you need to do in order to get to a different place on the graph? And that is a hijacking of a basic algebra lesson about coordinate axes, plotting of points, and maybe functions eventually into a generative word context. And of course, the students resonate with it because it's so narcissistic to get to talk about yourself all the time. And it seems fun and interesting. And it's frankly easy. It's not hard. It's actually very easy. It's childishly easy to go talk about yourself and imagine yourself a racial civil rights hero who's very committed to social justice and has a high awareness of racial consciousness or to point out your own flaws in yourself or have other people say, well, you don't understand this. And you can have this whole political discussion. The whole algebra lesson gets hijacked. And then they say, well, it got people engaged in wanting to do it. And therefore, it's a better way to teach the coordinate axes. It connected to them. And so you can circle back again, if you will, to the idea of cultural competence and see that this is exactly where all this comes from. Exactly a repackaging of this Freirean Marxist nonsense. And meanwhile, nobody learns algebra. Nobody learns mathematics or arithmetic. Nobody learns to read. They might cite, they might learn to identify the, the word struggle on sight, but they didn't actually learn to read. They didn't actually learn to sound out the word struggle or to figure out the word struggle from context clues and phonics when they encountered it in reading, which is what reading is actually about. And then thus to connect it to the meaning of the word struggle, all they did was talk about the political relevance of the word struggle while getting people to recognize and maybe mimic writing it down. It is an exact, the thing that he says, that Freire says is the failure of traditional or banking education is exactly the thing that they're doing. The iron law of woke projection never misses. So again, let me reiterate, this is why your kids cannot read, cannot write, cannot do math, cannot understand history on a functional grade level. In most cases, statistically speaking, they cannot do it. And the reason is because all Marxist educators care about is talking about political consciousness, political context, so that they can raise up a generation of activists who are as obsessed with this theology as they are. That's all it is. So that's chapter three. It's a pretty cursory summary. It's actually really short. It's only a couple of pages. Chapter four is not very long either. It's also just a couple of pages. And this one's weirdly specific. It's Cultural Action and Agrarian Reform is the title. Like I said, the book is a collection of essays he cobbled together and then edited, sort of. Um, so this chapter is fairly specific to the third world peasant context. It's not as general as we've seen so far. But um, it's important to bring up, not just for completeness, but because it focuses on yet another kind of Freirean pun, and that's that culture of silence we mentioned near the end of the last episode in chapter two. So the culture of silence is said to be experienced by peasants or anybody who is oppressed, partly through their illiteracy, which now we understand has multiple meanings at the same time, which is literal, which means lacking of vocab literal can't read, lacking of functional illiteracy also maybe, lacking a vocabulary for their experiences. This is a huge thing for Marxists that people can't name their oppression until they have a vocabulary for it. And then finally, Marxist political literacy about their conditions, which we just discussed from chapter three's hijacking of literacy education to talk about the word struggle. Because they are multiply illiterate in this multiple, you know, multiple different dimensions of illiteracy, according to Freire, uh, the meaning the peasants, or it would be children also, 
they're also silenced and have no means of escaping their oppression. They can't even articulate it. They can't speak the word and thus denounce the existing world and proclaim the new world. They can't even articulate it on any level. They don't have the ability to read or write. They don't have functional ability to extract meaning from what they read or write. They don't have the vocabulary to understand what they're experiencing, like the word struggle or like the word racism or something like this. And they don't have the political consciousness necessary to speak and proclaim the world and even to critically denounce the world they live in. So literacy and education for Freire in order to be emancipatory or liberatory must therefore function to break the culture of silence from beneath by replacing actually learning things and becoming competent or literate and turning people into political activists instead. So rather than learning to read, you learn to complain. Rather than learning to do math, you learn to complain. Rather than learning history, you learn why history is terrible and indicates the need to complain. So Freire's general premise explicitly stated is that the, in his words, I mean, this is very Marxist, is that the infrastructure of society cannot influence the superstructure of society that oppresses them. I don't know how much we need to flesh this out. Marx envisioned a split society, a stratified society. There is what he called the superstructure and the base. The base is kind of nature and then the people who are the producers. So that forms an infrastructure for society. The producers who take that is what is from nature and produce it into the literal infrastructure that makes society function, whether that's roads or buildings or um, energy or food or whatever it happens to be, hammer and sickle, as it were. And then you have the superstructure, which is kind of the managerial capitalist bourgeois class that's got all of this fancy higher level positions. It's exploiting the infrastructure and that creates the ideology that dictates how society it believes itself to be, the meta narrative, if you will, for society. And this ideology that they produce uh, it functions to keep them in power. And meanwhile, those two are in antagon class antagonism, the superstructure and infrastructure and in that antagonism, you build something called a structure. In critical race theory, what you have is a uh, superstructure of people who have access to whiteness, and they've created an ideology called white supremacy that explains why they have access to whiteness and why other people don't. And you have an infrastructure of people of color who do most of the interesting cultural work, which gets culturally appropriated by people who have access to whiteness. And there's this entire dynamic that plays out between in the class antagonism between those who have access to whiteness, who are whites and white adjacents and race traders, and then people who have been excluded from the uh, access to whiteness, which is a form of bourgeois racial property. There is a dynamic, a dialectical dynamic between them, especially when the infrastructure is awakened and even more so when elements of the superstructure are awakened to this so-called reality, this dialectical reality. And that creates a structure called structural racism that is the fundamental organizing principle of society. So this is Marxism, again, in a nutshell. And so within the educational sphere, to reproduce what we just heard from the previous chapter with regard to knowledge being bourgeois property or educated knowledge or whatever being bourgeois property, um, what he would be saying then, or literacy being bourgeois property, uh, what he's actually saying so there's then legitimate literacy, I should say, that is Marxist literacy, political literacy. And then there's bourgeois literacy, which is the ability to read and function in the existing society, which must be, according to the Communist Manifesto, Chapter 2, must be abolished uh, and replaced by the political Marxist literacy, 
which is the redistribution of capital, redistribution of knowledge, redistribution of learning. So we think of things like research justice, citational justice, and the uh, decolonization of the curriculum here. But what we're seeing here then is that there's that which society deems educated or literate that forms a literate educated superstructure. And then there's the uneducated, uh, illiterate, proletariat masses, infrastructure of society. They actually do most of the productive work for society because the educated don't only do kind of superstructural things and wouldn't be able to eat if somebody wasn't swinging the sickle and they wouldn't be able to, you know, have a home to eat it in if somebody wasn't swinging a hammer. And so that creates an antagonism between the two. The literate and illiterate classes are now in dialectical relationship in this regard. And there is a structure of, I guess, illiteracy or whatever that needs to be uh, understood in the Marxian context. And so what he's saying here in chapter four, explicitly, not summarizing, I mean, I am summarizing, but it's not like I'm sticking close to his words. He uses these words, infrastructure and superstructure, is that the infrastructure of society cannot, in, the infrastructure cannot influence the superstructure. So the illiterate cannot change the course of the literate. The people of color cannot change the course of whiteness. The proletariat cannot overthrow or cannot change the bourgeoisie. All that can happen is that this system can be overthrown by a class action, uh, a class solidarity action by the the people in the infrastructure. So he says the infrastructure cannot influence the superstructure that oppresses them unless they can both put themselves into dialectical relationship first, which is that class antagonism. So it starts with class consciousness and put themselves into, and this is his exact words, into a position of being agents of action, which is a reproduction of Hegel's man of action, who is a person who comes along you know, every so often throughout history when the contradictions in the dialectic become too much and then moves history through a revolution in his next phase. Hegel's archetype for the man of action was Napoleon who swept up in after the French Revolution and took command of everything and swept society into a new state of affairs after the French Revolution. So the Hegelian aspect here is clear. So again, Freire is saying the infrastructure, which is the illiterates, the oppressed cannot change the overarching structure of society because it's controlled by the people who have the superstructure and thus those who oppress them. They can't influence them. The slave can't influence the master to put it in the master-slave dialectic unless first the dialectical relationship is established and they make themselves into a position of agents of change or change agents or agents of action, whichever phrasing you want, which is to say critical activists, which is to say class conscious and class solidarity activists, which is to say uh, a proletariat, an awakened infrastructure that wants to overthrow the system. So skills-based literacy, he's arguing, cannot help this. Only critical pedagogy can achieve this by hitting literacy, which is really cultural competence and the modern phrasing, on all the levels at once. So this is the Freirean project to reinvent education into a Marxist program. This is, again, the thing that has taken over education throughout all of the West, or especially North America, since 1985 when this book was published. What does he actually say here? 
And remember, by the way, before we say, what does he actually say? How How is the infrastructure going to do this? Well, Luke Koch says that in, in history and class consciousness that the part can't, under, can't be understood except in terms of the whole. And then the total that actually makes sense, the whole that actually makes sense within the class antagonistic system is the class itself. So class consciousness held together or a, a class held together through solidarity in Marxist consciousness is the thing that becomes, it's not the individual. I don't become the change agent as a proletarian or as somebody in the infrastructure or the underclass. I create a collectivist consciousness with all of my infrastructural brothers and sisters and we together, not I, but we together as a collective overthrow the society. And so the intersectional solidarity, this is what Kimberly Crenshaw at the beginning of Mapping the Margins is talking about when she says that the disparate voices of a few can't affect change in the same way that the combined voices of many millions can. This is what this is all about. That's how you can also tell that Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality or so critical race theory and intersectionality are Marxism. But what does Freire actually say here? And I'm telling you, he actually said agent of action. Here's the quote. The role of an agent of action adopted by those who have taken the initiative ceases to belong solely to them when peasants also assume this role. Cultural action oriented toward the synthesis begins with thematic investigation or generative themes through which peasants can begin a critical self-reflection and self-appraisal. In other words, the role of agent of action is to be seized and taken up by the peasants they can't actually do that until there's thematic investigation or generative themes. In other words, until they are being fed educational materials that are going to awaken their class consciousness, that is, through which peasants can begin a critical self-reflection and self-appraisal to awaken a class consciousness so they can awaken a class solidarity so that they can become an agent of action He says, in presenting their own objective reality, how and where they are, in other words, actually their pathos, their lived experience, their lived reality, their own objective reality, it's not objective, it's pathos. It's not logos, it's pathos. In presenting their own objective reality, how and where they are, their lived reality is what he means, as in problem solving during a thematic investigation, peasants begin to revise their previous views of their real world their real world through code sorry through codified situations they will then achieve an understanding of their previous knowledge in other words they're not awakened yet in so doing they expand the limits of knowledge so their subjective range increases appreciating in their quote deep vision the dimensions that up to then were not understood and are now perceived by them as clearly understood they've become awakened to their class consciousness. It's just a reproduction of Marxism. Again, this type of cultural action can only make sense when one tries to present it as a theoretical instance of social experience in which peasants participate. In other words, pathos. If one is alienated from this experience, one loses oneself, emptied in a series of nonsense syllables. So here we have the reproduction of Marx's idea of alienation. The idea, I meant to say this earlier, actually, and it slipped my mind, the um, this kind of knowledge thing that he's laid out where, where being educated or knowledge or literate or whatever becomes like uh, bourgeoisie and then being uneducated or illiterate or without knowledge is like proletariat. 
And it's a caused by it's caused by your social situation, social relations. That's what he said. It's nobody chooses to be that way. Nobody chooses to be illiterate. Um, now we see it being related to the idea of alienation. So the banking model of education that he's putting forth, in other words, how education really works, real pedagogy, uh, because it's, the banking model is a freaking caricature of the real thing. It's skills based learning that eventually matures into meaning based learning. Um, in accordance with reality, what he's trying to say, the banking model of education alienates the learner and prevents him from ever actually being able to express himself in his own words. And so he's alienated from his himself, his learning experience, from the idea of knowledge entirely, and from the ability to speak the world and thus proclaim it. And so th he said this now quite explicitly, the banking model of education, which he associates with the, with, with, Phonics, which he hates, he hates phonics, hates phonics. It's right there. This type of cultural action, he says, can only make sense when one tries to present it as a theoretical instance of a social experience in which peasants participate. If one is alienated from this experience, one loses oneself emptied in a series of nonsense syllables. In other words, phonics. So phonics alienates the learner. The learner never learns his political context because he never becomes truly politically literate. In other words, he never becomes a Marxist, and thus he never can understand his experience. Thus, he can never become part of a solidarity movement that is an agent of action to sweep through and change society in accordance with Hegel and Marx. Finally, he says, cultural action, as we understand it, cannot be superimposed on the peasant's world vision. It cannot invade them and require that they adapt themselves to it. On the contrary, in establishing this vision as a starting point and seeing it as a kind of problem to be solved, the educator exercises with the peasants a critical evaluation of their worldview, resulting in their, increasing, uh, in their increasingly clearer involvement with the real world in transformation. So in other words, the role of the educator is to exercise with the peasants, a critical evaluation, blah, 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 is not to teach them. It is to become an activist with them, a Marxist activist with them, so they can understand that the whole point of learning is to understand that the world is in transformation and that they are a component part. They are not in the world, but with the world, a component part of it. They can speak into it, and all they have to do is figure out what conditions are necessary to become agents of action or change agents in the modern parlance, and then they can do that. And that's what Freirean education is about. That's why your kids can't read. So two facts are virtually unavoidable as a result of this reading. One is that the educational programs of today are undeniably Freirean. If you don't see it at this point, I don't know how to convince you, but go listen to the Cultural Competence podcast and you'll, or Cultural Relevant Teaching podcast and you'll get it. Especially under, like I say here, uh, like, especially under banners like cultural competence, um, culturally responsive teaching, culturally sustaining teaching, and so on. Probably ethnic studies is going to fall straight within this purview. Uh, I mentioned in the last episode of the podcast that social-emotional learning is one of the vehicles by which this is actually being introduced. Uh, the transformative version, therefore. Um, cultural competence and culturally relevant teaching, just kind of as a... 
uh, emblem of this, which I think is the most obvious, uh, is blatantly just the identity Marxist repackaging of Freirean critical pedagogy. That's why it's so important to Freirean critical pedagogists who have taken over our education system. So this is one of the reasons that critical race theory has no place in our education system. And when they say it's not there, they're freaking lying because they're doing it under branches like cultural competence, where they're teaching kids to talk about their context and then interpreting the context through the lenses that critical race theory would lend them. Uh, secondly, so it's the first thing I think is obvious that this is a re critical conscious or uh, today's education programs are a blatant packaging up of Freirean uh, pedagogy in various ways. So he is the cornerstone. And secondly, Freire's project is undeniably culturally Marxist, absolutely to the core. And it is so in a theological way. And that's why he's relevant. He's relevant because he's producing the theology of Marxism in a resonant way that doesn't really look like that, but in a way that gives people something, a way to understand what they're what they're attempting and, and something to do with it. So together, these reveal that education and critical pedagogy vein is actually a transformation of school into Marxist Sunday school. We don't have an education system in this country anymore to the degree that it has taken up critical pedagogy, to the degree that it has taken up critical pedagogy, it is a Marxist theology Sunday school. And of course, the basic premise is shown to be an inversion. Education, as it is, seeks, uh, this is, this is the way that they frame it. Education as it is seeks to indoctrinate. They they say, so their, Freire's view is that education is indoctrination. And so critical education seeks to be real education. So it's teaching learners not what to think, but how to think again, but how to think like Marxists. And like I mentioned in the previous episode of the podcast, there are reasons to accept the premise. There's a sticky idea or there's toeholds. If you want to think about like climbing a a rock wall, there are toeholds or the claws can get in to believe that in fact, our current education system has elements of indoctrination and even capitalist indoctrination. Whether you want to look at, you know, the way that the school reformers like John Dewey, et cetera, organize things, or you want to look at the way that the, you know, ambitions of people like the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, now the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, worked in education reform to make a very kind of assembly line model to make make students who are fit to be workers, which isn't really a terrible thing in the economy unless you think the economy is inherently bad, but some of these big dudes like Ford and Rockefeller and their foundations were in fact interested in keeping basically docile factory workers who wouldn't rise up and become competitors against them. So there's some truthiness to all of this, but the framing for Freire is that existing the education, the way that it actually exists within the existing society is indoctrination to uphold the existing system and critical education therefore teaches people how to think for the first time rather than to be indoctrinated. And the way the only legitimate way to think, to be literate, to be educated is to be Marxist. So education is framed in the Freirean inversion as indoctrination by the means of the usual kinds of caricatures. And Marxist programming is framed as the answer to that problem. And this is, of course, all caricature. It's all fake. It's not really what education's about. It's not really what people are attempting to do. It's not really what's even accomplished. But Marxist educators through this inversion position themselves as, and no kidding, in their own words, messianic saviors through awakening the religious consciousness and thus 
as they believe, the pathway to the kingdom of communism made here on earth. And so this is these four chapters, I think, really have laid out quite clearly what the um, Freirian model is. I think we'll just go ahead and read through this strange chapter five. I mean, I could cut this here, but um, the strange chapter five I can do as a separate one. I guess this is an hour, so maybe it's better to do that. Uh, so I guess I'll do that. Welcome to the New Discourses podcast, by the way, where I make my decisions live on the air about what I'm going to do. So the next episode will be actually a full reading of chapter five, the social worker's role in the process of change. So we've kind of heard this theory side, and then we're going to hear the praxis side. But rather than the educator, he shifts to the social worker, which I think is its own interesting point. Um, and so we'll turn to that in the next episode. I think it's, again, very important that we unpack Freire. We understand what's going on with Freire. We understand how central Freire is to the organization of education today. And again, all of these other programs, culturally relevant teaching, liberatory education, ethnic studies, um, social and emotional learning to a degree, all start to become transparent in what they are when we understand that they're all built on the Freirean paradigm. The Freirean paradigm is just a basic reproduction of the Marxian theology and a new articulation of it in a time where that was desperately needed for uh, leftist adherents um, in a new context, which is education. I think that the key for why Freire, which is a very important question, is because as a religious prophet, what you can kind of look at historically is the arc of Marxism, just to kind of summarize, is that Marx comes out with a very theological, very uh, excited vision. It clearly didn't work. Critical Marxists come along very pessimistic. They say that we can't articulate a positive vision of the world anymore. We're only going to have a negative vision. And then you have Freire come along. This is in 1985. Really, the critical Marxist project sort of died in a significant way in 1972. This last gasp is really Herbert Marcuse's counter-revolution and revolt. Meanwhile, you know, just to kind of fill in the story, you have the black feminists running in the identity politics direction initiated by Marcuse. And frankly, the people in the World Economic Forum are also very Marcusean and running in their own corporate direction with his thoughts. Those will come back together roughly 2011. But uh, these black feminists who got very interested, by the way, in education and picked up a lot of this, uh, helping to lead to the critical turn in education, are, are taking the critical theory, critical Marxist pathway into identity Marxism is a new vein of thing. Meanwhile, you've got Freire over here coming up with a reinvention of the entire program of Marxism in education, but also articulating something new, something that's been gone. Marxism in its original form was loaded up with hope. In fact, it wasn't even hope. It was just blind confidence. Marx believed that it was an inevitability that the proletariat would awaken, rise up, seize the means of production, and we'd be on our way to communism in no time. The critical Marxists were like, this didn't work. Why? Well, you can't even talk. Marx was wrong about a variety of things, and you can't even talk about a positive vision of the world as one of those things. So we're going to be relentlessly negative. That peters out in its pure form, but also goes identity political and a kind of tangent. And then Freire, right around the same time, starts talking about this idea of critical hope. No, we can believe that it'll work. That's critical hope. It's the belief that we can hope that it'll work this time if we just 
kind of get things right. And then he comes along in 85, and this becomes very poignant, and he's announcing and denouncing, or denunciation and enunciation, as we'll get to. He's coming along with a model by which education can be used to teach people to be politically or Marxist-style literate so that they can proclaim the world by speaking the word, which is the Marxist theory. Marxist theory is the word. If you learn to speak the word, then you can proclaim the world. And as we'll hear later in the book, he has this whole model of denunciation, which is the negative aspect of critical Marxism, and enunciation of the new world in the perpetual revolution that he's advocating for. And so he shuttles in this idea of hope where hope was lost, right? And so Freire really, and I think I titled one of the podcasts about this book, That is the New Hope, and to riff off of Star Wars. Um, and I think that that's why this is so relevant and so resonant. So that's my explanation. That's the best I've got for you. I hope that you found this edifying, but you have to understand that this is how education has been remade, and this is what it has been remade into. A direct expression in other gar garb and guises of the Marxian theology, which if you don't understand the Marxist theology, you can't understand what's happened in education, you can't understand what's happening culturally, you can't understand what's happening to our society, and therefore we probably can't stop it. But hopefully we'll get through this and get it figured out. Catch you next time.